Hi, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Roverman. I just want to thank you for uh, downloading our latest episode. Uh, don't forget to follow us at SpeechBubblePod on Twitter uh, or find us on iTunes. And when you download us from iTunes, please rate and review our show. Um, show us some love. That would be very appreciated. It helps, uh, it helps our ranking and draws more people to the podcast. The episode that you are about to hear, it was released on January 25th, and that's no accident, because it's the anniversary of the uh, death of someone who we talk about on this episode. Her name is Deborah Jane Shelley. She died in uh, 2014, January 25th, of, uh, of epilepsy, and she was a very big... Uh, presence in the community. She uh, pioneered uh, the ladies' nights at the comic book lounge and gallery and really was an advocate for uh, women getting into comics and uh, really spoke her mind about uh, comics in general. So just to not throw you off, uh, that's why we have the tribute at the top of the show because this episode was recorded uh, only a few days after her passing. After that, we're talking to uh, Brian Avenue, who you'll notice at the end of our conversation, uh, he sort of hints that he was working on a show with uh, Will Forte and, and Elizabeth Banks. That show ended up being uh, Moonbeam City. I don't know if you've uh, seen it. It's very pastel, very 80s. Uh, cartoon. So uh, yeah, uh, listen to his uh, uh, musings, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, the episode. Thanks. Bye. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. You're listening to Speech Bubble. I'm your host, Aaron Broverman. And we're starting our show a little bit somber this evening. Of course, this is the show where we interview the luminaries of the Toronto comic scene. And uh, on the date that this is being recorded, January 28, 2014, uh, we lost someone rather special uh, in the scene. Uh, her name was Deborah Jane Shelley, and, and I'm going to invite my guest, Mr. Brian Avenue, to, to discuss her with me just as we open the show. Uh, but first, I have to introduce my guest. <laughs> Brian Avenue is... One of my great friends, he's, he's one of the journeymen of the independent comic scene, the journeymen of Artist Alley, if you will. Uh, you may have picked up one of his books at one of the local Toronto shows, Dawn River, Sassy Mavericks, uh, but his latest work is an anthology called Monstrosity. And basically what it is, is a bunch of Toronto artists get together, some of them Eisner Award winning, such as Jay Bone. They get together and they contribute stories about monsters. And that came out, I guess, in fall 2013. 
He's also an animator. He's worked on shows like Gerald McBoingBoing and Ugly Americans. So, uh, Brian, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, it's great to be here. Like I said, we did lose somebody in the community uh, this past Saturday, uh, rather suddenly. And, and why I'm taking time out to remember her is because not only was she the girlfriend of Kevin Boyd, who's the owner of the Comic Book Lounge and Gallery, but at the Comic Book Lounge and Gallery, they hold a lot of events and signings. And, you know, it's a very pivotal place in, in the scene because there's always something going on there. And she was just sort of like a ray of light. She was always happy. She always had a smile on her face. She was there all the time, not only to support Kevin, but to support the community in general. Uh, her name was Deborah Jane Shelley. And, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't a person who was a professional in the scene, but she definitely was a fan and she definitely had an opinion about every geek thing that was going on uh, in the world of comics, both locally and, and beyond that. She was the one who helped me with my Bronies article. Uh, I wrote about Bronies, male fans of My Little Pony, and she was the one who told me that if you're an adult woman who is a fan of My Little Pony, you're not just a fan of My Little Pony, you are a Pegasister. And she she basically explained to me the delineation of names for the different subcultures of not just My Little Pony, but you know, Doctor Who with the whole Whovians thing and, and other uh, cult shows and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, she always had something to say. Her latest obsession was uh, the Matt Fraction, Chip Zdarsky. Sex criminals. Sex criminals, right? Good one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And she, she couldn't... She would talk your ear off about sex criminals and how pro-feminist it was and, and that sort of thing. So so that's why, you know, I kind of wanted to bring Brian in here and I kind of wanted to mention her. We both didn't know her extremely well, but we definitely encountered her at the comic book lounge. Uh, and she, she always had a smile and she was always behind the camera. Like she always had the pictures. I think I'm in a whole bunch of pictures that she took. But unfortunately, I never got a picture with her. So uh, what we know in terms of the circumstances of her passing was she came home to uh, her shared appointment, apartment with Kevin and to take her customary afternoon nap. And she had uh, an epileptic seizure and died. That's, that's all we know right now. Very suddenly, she was posting things on Facebook like hours before. I think somebody said that she posted something like, you know, talking about the Daleks from Doctor Who uh, just a couple hours before. So, I mean, Brian, what do you remember about Deborah? Well, uh, as you said, I didn't know Deborah super well. Um, I went into the lounge and she was often there. And uh, when we would have events, as you said, she'd always be uh, one of the people manning the cameras, taking photos. Ever present smile. She was always smiling. Uh, she was whip smart. I remember uh, talking to her about uh, the Catwoman, Batman, fornicating trouble at DC, the new DC. Uh, uh, in the first uh, issue of Catwoman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she had some really funny comments to say when we talked about that at Word on the Street uh, a couple years back. Um, I think actually what her last post about, though, on Facebook was about um, 
Toronto uh, Ladies uh, Night at the Lounge, which was something that she was a point member on and uh, a really, really important person with putting that uh, event together. In the community, she was a really strong presence for female creators and a, a rallier for them. Yeah, she'll be missed. I didn't know her as well as I did, but uh, obviously thoughts and uh, are with Kevin and uh, Deborah's family. It's it's really terrible. Yeah, she she was a good friend of uh, Rachel Ritchie and uh, uh, the girls who were putting together the reprints of uh, Mel Melvana of the North uh, right now. So. I know she was a big supporter of that project as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge loss. And, you know, everybody that heard about it, heard about it probably mostly on Facebook from Kevin's post that he left. And he, he was very eloquent about it. He said, she left this afternoon. And at first I'm like, left? Left where? And then it sort of dawns on you that she's, she's not around anymore. Yeah, it was pretty uh, shocking. I, I uh, read it in bed on Twitter because I'm one of those people. Uh, you know, it felt like a bit of a punch in the gut because she's so young and so vibrant, so full of life. So it was a very, it was very, very shocking and very upsetting. She also supported a lot of like online geek communities. So a lot of people came forward and basically made posts and blog posts in those communities saying, you know, I didn't know her at all. We never met in person, but I felt like I knew her really well. And I felt like, you know, we were going to meet at first. And that just goes to show, like, if somebody thinks that, you know, she is so warm and kind and all they're looking at is a monitor, then then you know that she definitely uh, radiated the wattage of, of, of a thousand suns for a lot of people. So... All right. So yeah. So you know, Deborah, we're we're uh, always going to remember you, and uh, we're sorry we don't get to see you in person uh, anymore. And our condolences go out to uh, Kevin Boyd, her uh, her partner, and uh, and her her family for sure. So uh, switching gears, uh, we're here to talk about Brian. So. Brian, one of the ways I like to open this podcast is I like to, it's sort of about trying to sort of retrace people's comic book uh, history, like how they, how they got into comics, how they started, not just professionally, but how they found out about comics and wh- why they fell in love with the medium. So just to get a sense of like, you know, where your first comic shop was and, and where you went around the city. I want to know that about you. When did you pick up your first comic? I, I don't remember when I picked up my first comic for sure, but I uh, grew up in Oshawa, and uh, when I was a kid, the, the big comic store was... Um, well, I, I used to go to a shop called Ken's Comics, which was pretty pretty shifty and a little ghetto, but I, I think my very first comic... Was there a guy shop, named Ken there? There was a guy <laughs> named Ken. And I'm pretty sure they had a counterfeit issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issue one, because I used to, like, covet it all the time, but it was only, like, a hundred bucks. So looking back, I think it must have been one of those counterfeit copies <laughs> that you always hear about. Yeah. I remember on my birthday, when the first Batman movie came out, my dad ordered the Batmobile for me for my birthday, Whoa. and Ken just never got it in. I don't know what happened, just never got it, so it wasn't very good at his job. That shop disappeared. But my first comic was, uh, that I remember clearly, 
was uh, Fall of the Mutants, uh, Uncanny X-Men. The X-Men are like flying in like a kind of like a V formation over Dallas, which is where the Fall of the Mutants happened. That would have been like issue 219 or 220 or something like that. That was my very first comic and that I remember clearly. And from that point on, I was a huge, huge uh, X-Men fan. I started collecting back issues. One of my first back issues was Death of Phoenix Saga, where like uh, uh, Cyclops is holding Phoenix's body on the cover. This is that before her actual death, but that that was the cover of that issue. Yeah, it's, the, it's the iconic. It's one of the iconic covers of comic history. Beautiful. Man, Claremont and Byrne uh, were a huge influence on me because of X Men, and uh, obviously I was all about Jim Lee when he came on, and uh, Sylvestri and uh, Smith. So it was really it was X Men for me. And uh, the comic store I started shop shopping in once I started getting serious was, uh, it was called Unicorn Comics, mm-hmm. downtown Oshawa, and uh, it burned down, sadly, and it's gone through a couple of iterations since then, but it's now called Worlds Collide, and it's on Simcoe Street in Oshawa, and it's one of, I think it's the best comic book shop in Durham region. Yeah, there's a lot of great comic guys who came out of Oshawa, and... Uh, uh, most of them shopped at Unicorn Comics or Worlds Collide. So that's awesome. So yeah. how did it burn down? Do you, do you know <laughs> the lore? I don't know. Uh, downtown Oshawa has always been pretty sketchy, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of the neighbors trying to do a little insurance claim hustle. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm not totally sure. I was very young at the time. I was like eight or ten or something like that. But I remember it was very upsetting thinking of all those comics burning up. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. So, so what attracted you to the medium in the first place, and what attracts you still now? Because now you're in it. Now you're an artist. Yeah. Uh, what 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 got you into comics? What made you pick them up? Because I mean, that's what Marvel and DC are always saying. How do we get kids to read comics? Like the fan base is so old. So, what got you into it? Yeah, like um, you know. It, the big stories, the big adventures, the costumes, the superpowers, all that stuff. The drawings were fantastic. I had a slight aptitude for drawing, and that kind of encouraged me to follow down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, my elder brother, my, my brother Doug, he was buying Spider-Man comics. So I was buying all the X-Men comics, and he was buying all the Spider-Man comics. So you know, looking up to your brother and stuff like that, I was probably following in his footsteps a little bit, too. But yeah, you know, I don't know exactly what it was about those comics, but I was I was crazy for comics. Once I got the bug, it was X-Men, it was Spider-Man. I started to get into really into the Flash relaunch around the same time the Man of Steel relaunch happened. Had a lot of Fantastic Four. You go to the dollar store, you get like bags of comics, you get some Avengers in there, Fantastic Four. Did I ever say that? Yeah. So... A lot of great stuff. I was always a Marvel kid, though. Like, I, I dabbled in DC, like Detective Comics, Batman, Flash, but uh, they never really did it for me, you know? If it, if any DC character, it was always Batman, but even then, it still still wasn't the same. Are you, are you one of those guys who likes what everybody likes about Marvel, the whole, like, you know, real sort of heroes with problems sort of thing, or...? At the time, I don't think I read it like that. Yeah. At the time, I don't think I realized that. I guess, I guess I did. Um, I, I always remember uh, uh, Colossus like life drawing with uh, Betsy Braddock, mm-hmm. uh, Psylocke, and uh, I, me- I remember little panels like that. I would love the baseball scenes 
whether they'd be playing baseball together at the Xavier Institute. I always loved those little real life things that made uh, the X Men feel really real to me. Uh, you know, I was like any kid though. Like Wolverine was my guy. And going back even further too, right? Like I was a Ninja Turtle kid all the way. Like I was I all was about totally the cartoon. Cool. You know, I was collecting the collecting the cards, the action oh, figures, and everything so like that. Much. So that was a big that was a big uh, entry point too, which I shouldn't forget to mention because I love Eastman and Laird. Yeah, yeah, no, like when when I met Laird, I, I think. Uh, either one of the fan expos or Paradise show, and he gave me that head sketch of, yeah. of one of the turtles. That was that was awesome. He does that same head sketch at almost every convention. I, I'm pretty sure we met him at the same one. Yeah, uh, and that was quite a while ago. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Especially now that I make independent comics, I'm I'm even more impressed with Eastman and Laird and their stories and uh, what they've done since then. I, I think it's I think they're great. The great people look to. I used to have all the action figures, and then and then my mom gave them away or sold them in a garage sale. Jezebel. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I'd be rich. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a sore spot for me. But um, but yeah, but so what made you get into the decision of you know uh, not only am I a fan of comics, but I want to make them and I want to be an artist. For my career, I mean, you're you're an animator now, and then you also do these independent comics. So, what made you commit to comics artistically? I was a terrible student, you know. I was really bad at school. Uh, I was good in art class, and I, I liked drawing. Um, when I, uh, whenever I thought about what I was going to do, I was going to be a comic book artist, and then. Um, I guess at a certain point, I realized that I wasn't Jim Lee. Like, I didn't draw like Jim Lee, and I wasn't going to be Jim Lee. I could see that in it. And uh, so I started to think about what other jobs I could do where I could draw all day. So then I got into animation. And, uh, you know, after school, uh, high school was done, I went to college and did that whole thing. And I don't know when it was. I guess it would be around 2003 or something. Uh, A buddy of mine, Steve Sloan, who's also in Monstrosity... He introduced me to a comic called Scott Pilgrim. And uh, Scott Pilgrim Volume 1 was out, and I think Volume 2 was just about to come out. And uh, I had read some independent comics before, but none of it had really hit before because most of it, uh, what I had read, was stuff I love, but stuff that didn't super appeal to me in like a sense where I would want to do it, you know? So things like blankets, like great books, but not things that, you know, inspired me to draw and hit those action sensibilities, but Scott Pilgrim really did it for me. And, uh, and Brian Lee O'Malley, like a fantastic artist. But if you look at where he is now to volume one, I was like, like this guy doesn't draw like Jim Lee. Like this is attainable is what I thought. I was like, this guy's better than me, but he's not like a jillion times better than me. Like Jim Lee, like, you know, cause I thought to make comics, you had to draw like Jim Lee. Yeah. Um, so that, opened my eyes completely and I realized that I could make comics. So I started to look to get involved in comics and the first thing I did was a 24-hour comic challenge in Ottawa where I was at the time working in animation. Uh, Me and all my animation pals, uh, we did this 24-hour comic challenge and and, uh, I did my first book there and it was about like (laughs) these guys fighting some skinheads and uh, the skinheads are led by Super Hitler and uh, it's pretty fun. Yeah, 
Wow. Yeah. So, did you, and did you finish the book? Because yeah. that's always the challenge for most yeah. power challenges. So the thing was, it's 24 pages in 24 hours. That's the McLeod challenge. Yeah. But what I started doing was, I, I started drawing my eight pages, and it was like, Sin City was the big thing at that time. So it was very Sin City influenced. It was like this brother and his, like, his big buddy named Chrome. And uh, they were chasing after these uh, skinheads who stole the sister. And I got eight pages in, like, super detailed. And then I was like, shit, I'm not going to finish this thing. So all of a sudden, I started to go to, like, one-page splashes, you know? <laughs> nice. So I was penciling every page and inking it, but I was still falling behind. So then for the last eight pages of the book, it's straight brush to page. Can I swear on this? It was fucking terrible. Uh, it was fucking terrible. But it's awesome because at a certain point... The, the main character, he's like freaking out, and it's just like all these big, like, <laughs> words and brush behind his head, and he's like freaking out. And then he goes, My sister! And he, he cuts Super Hitler in half. Nice. And that's nice. how it ends. Well, that's the 24th page, Hitler cut in half. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and if I recall, uh, you know, I, I've done a few comic book challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think did we meet at a comic book challenge? Yeah, we met. That was the uh, that was the year I started Lucy Legacy. So I was at no, no, that was the year I started Psychic Drama. Mm-hmm. So I was at um, I, I had moved to Toronto, and I was looking for a place that would do the twenty four hour comic challenge because I really wanted to do one because I loved it. It made me do comics, and um, no one was hosting one. So I was going around to the comic shops asking if anybody would be willing to host one. And I met Leon, who's the proprietor of yeah. the Harry Tarantula. And he had a store in the north end of Tur- Northwest, uh, the junction. It's not Northwest anymore, I realize now, because I live there. But at the time, I was like, where is this strange outer land of hinterland of Toronto? But it was the junction. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a 24-hour comic challenge. Yeah, yeah. it was at the... Uh he called it the Comic Stop and Toy Cane, I think was the name of the was the name of his other shop where we had the the comic challenge. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the Harry Tarantula West. Was it there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, because I think I think it started out with one name and then he changed it to the other name. But we'll have to get him in here to sort of <laughs> sort of confirm what what was going on. Uh, but yeah, I remember that because it was all one level in his main store. Uh, on uh, Dundas and Gould, Dundas and Young sort of area is like a is a walk up, and mm-hmm. this was this was all one level main floor. Yeah, it was the first comic challenge I ever did. Uh, the idea for it that I had was, I mean, he was in it. It was about making a twenty four hour comic. Yeah, I remember at Leon's shop, and I did a drawing of Leon. Uh, we had been friends uh, for a while. Uh, I still have a box that I've got to pick up, like five hundred dollars worth of comics <laughs> that's still waiting for me there. Uh, but but yeah, I mean that was that was hilarious, and I I met a, I met a lot of artists there. You know who else was at that inaugural uh, location twenty four hour challenge that we met at was uh, Rodrigo Brava. Yeah, Rodrigo was also there. I got I got to get Rodrigo in here, and he. Made it into the anthology. Yeah, he made it into McLeod's anthology. They, yeah, Scott McLeod, who invented the 24-hour comic challenge. That's right. The, uh, Nate Gertler would help him publish the sort of best of the best of all the 24-hour comic challenges that take place on that one day. And uh, Rodrigo made it in. And then a little doodle 
of a Scott McCloud and a Tooth Fairy outfit that I did in my comic. Uh, made it in. Did it really? The, I didn't know to, that. To the, to the introduction, when they're explaining like what the 24-hour comic challenge is and its origin, <laughs> they put my little drawing of Scott McCloud as a tooth fairy into that into that anthology. The year before when I had done it in Ottawa, my buddy Steve Slund, who I already mentioned, who's in Monstrosity, he also got in. So it was two years in a row where people I had done it got into the anthology, so it was kind of cool. Nice. So when did you go from the 24-hour comic challenges to actually, like, doing your own books and, like, committing to to, to doing them? So um, at that first 24-hour comic challenge, I started this comic, which would turn into psychic drama, which is only available on my website. It's, like, a 120-page comic. And uh, I restarted what I started there, later on, but after I started that, I decided I wanted to do something quick just to like finish and make sure I could do a comic book. And that's when I started Lucy Legacy, which was, I guess, within the following year. So Lucy Legacy was like a 30-page action comic, kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Aliens, and uh, it's like pretty low on plot, but uh, it was a lot of fun, and I finished it. And uh, I had a good job in animation at that point, and I was like 24 years old or 25 years old, so I had nothing to spend money on. So I threw a lot of money at it, and I got like this perfect bound, nice glossy cover. I have that. I have a glossy cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was fun. So I guess within the next year of that, I started to think about doing them for shows. I wasn't thinking of shows, but once you put out a book, you got to sell them. You know, so that that's where I started thinking about doing shows. And now you do them like I was looking at your website, you do them annually. Basically, My you, books? Have, you have one book every yeah. year that you put out for the main shows yeah. of, of that year. Yeah, pretty much every year my deadline is TCAF. Um last year I didn't put out a book, but I did put out Monstrosity and in Monstrosity I have twenty pages, so mm-hmm. so I was like, yeah, this is okay. It's okay. Yeah, so <laughs> like man Monstrosity is is an anthology book, like you said, um, and people people may not know this, but uh, there was a collaboration between you and me yeah. to be a part of an of an anthology. That's so, right. Monstrosity was not your first attempt at, no. at an anthology. No, uh, basically, uh, we had a friend. I had a friend, Matthew Muhammad, the Black Bastard, who we, we Black will get. Bastard. We will get in here at some point, and he was a growing concern on the convention scene because his character, the Black Bastard, it was this black exploitation uh, takeoff comic, kind of like the Boondocks and things like that. But he he lived the character at these shows. Like he would he would do the afro and put on the pimp coat and he'd have the cane and everything. And at a certain point, he asked a bunch of uh, artist friends of his to contribute to the first uh, black bastard, uh, black tacula yeah. anthology. Yeah. And uh, I contributed a story with another artist from I think uh, Michigan named Robert Grove, and it was basically a takeoff on uh, the Maury Povich paternity test shows, and and that was and it was essentially Black Bastard trying to figure out if he fathered a kid. So then I guess a couple of years go by and they invite me to do the second one. Yeah. And he had 
I think the story goes is he had some minor characters in his comics that were like the bodyguards at for for a certain plot point in his comics, and he called them the Malcolm X Men, of yeah. course. And he wanted me to develop the Malcolm X Men into an actual takeoff superhero team yeah. and figure out where their powers came from and everything like that. And by that point, I knew a lot more artists and you know, myself, so I invited you. I invited you in. Yeah, right? that's how I remember it. I think. Yeah. Yes. A- so we had a we had we had some fun drawing that con. <laughs> uh, do, do, what do you remember about that? I remember we had a meeting yeah. at Spring Rolls. Yeah, so you brought me up for dinner. That was nice. <laughs> and I think I had some thumbnails for you to look at, and I, I can't remember how long it was. It was five or six pages. But um, I was really excited because I, I had never, you know, I had self-published my own stuff. I was excited to be in an anthology and, like, be with other people. Like, at the time, I think there was being names thrown around that I considered uh, very big time on the scene. You know, like, Scott Hepburn was supposed to be in there. And I think, uh, I, who knows it, who else? But Tyrone McCarthy was going to be in oh, there. Tyrone yeah, McCarthy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was super excited. And uh, so then we pumped that thing out and because... Uh, Matt gave us a deadline. Matt yeah. gave us a deadline. Yeah, 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 for sure. He gave us a deadline. I then, nailed that deadline. <laughs> Knocked it out of the park. Yeah, it was awesome. Especially because my scripts were so, like, detailed and... You had uh, funny ideas, though. Like, you know, like, the Black Bastard concept is, like, uh, you know, like, it's, it's, it's fun. But uh, your concepts were, you know, they were pretty... They were like nice takes, nice little spins on the X Men. I enjoyed it. Like uh, Wolverine had the what do you call it? Afro picks. Afro picks for claws. for claws, which is fun. Yeah, Afro picks for claws. I based uh, I based the Gambit character on Melvin Williams, who yeah. was the preacher in The Wire, and had him instead of having it be like explosive cards it was an explosive craps game yeah and dice <laughs> in the alley and stuff yeah i had a go <laughs> i had a Golosses <laughs> that was uh instead of blackface it was whiteface so yeah it was painted <laughs> white yeah. completely and uh, uh yeah. cyclops had a ragtime piano kind of like ray charles oh and, that's right yeah and, and they and one. they all got their powers from uh talcum x which was the <laughs> talcum powder yeah. that they used so yeah it was it was sort of you know kind of in bad taste depending on who you are we got to uh, we got to send that to the Eisners for best short yeah, yeah like yeah. i think they're taking submissions right now uh, i don't know it's uh, I don't know how that never celebrated. Yeah. It was incredible. So, but for some reason, I guess because his life got busy and he 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 got a girlfriend and, and that sort of thing and started stepping away more from the convention scene. Matthew never published the second the second anthology, and to this day, I still have one of your drawings that I bought off you for dirt cheap. That's right, you did. You bought, well, like, the big, uh, the big rallying episode. Yeah, yeah, page, where right? you see all, all the Malcolm X-Men, X-Men yeah. roll call coming together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, man, that was fun. Well, too bad it didn't, didn't see the light of day. <laughs> no, no, I'm, like, okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, if we, but if we ever need that drawing again, you can just break the frame. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, Is there, like, a little hammer set yeah, beside yeah, it? Yeah, we'll have a little hammer In case of printing? Exactly, exactly. 
So, so how did you get involved with uh, Monstrosity? Because this was a more legit anthology <laughs> opportunity that I could that I could offer you. Um, Phil McClory is another. He's my co-editor on Monstrosity, and I would say Monstrosity One is uh, more his book than mine. Um, we worked on it together in lockstep, but uh, it was his concept. But um, okay. what's the concept? Uh, monster themed anthology, pretty much. Just throw awesome people at a monster themed anthology. Cool. So how it started though was um, he the year previous had done a horror western anthology called Horror in the West, okay, and published it through Alternate. Um, I came on to that book. And I, I told him I wanted to help out and, like, make the book as good as possible. And uh, I did what I could to help him with it. I think I brought on a couple artists on that one. And I also uh, did a lot of uh, editing for him. And I did a lot of uh, title page illustrations, things like that. So I got to know Phil a lot better through that. Phil is in his own right. He's a writer. And uh, he'd been doing indie comics for a long time. And we had met at a convention where he picked up Don River or something like that. And we kept in touch ever since. After that was done, we started talking. And he published it through Alterna. Uh, we started talking about the next anthology. And I wanted to have a much bigger role in this one. I wanted to help put the book together, select the artists, help select the writing teams, things like that. So we worked on it as a partnership. So that was how monstrosity came together, I guess. There's a lot to uh, editing a book, you know, a lot to finding the right artists and finding the right writers and, uh, you know, um, elevating it so that it's a good book, you know? Um, what did you find yourself having to do? Well, a lot of it is personal aesthetic choices, right? Like, I've been on the comic scene for a long time, I guess, and you get to know a lot of people and you get to know a lot of friends. And the nice thing about editing that book was that there's like a million people who I know who I don't think get looked at enough, you know? And I think genre comics in the indie circuit kind of don't get enough attention. Uh, well, no, not kind of. Like, I don't think they get enough attention. And I think, like, there's they're in a weird middle spot between indie, you know, bleeding heart comics and then superhero comics indie genre comics are in this kind of weird middle ground. And uh, I was very excited to be able to like help shed some light on some of my artist friends who I think are fantastic and probably don't get enough print written about them or looked at by enough eyes. So the strength of bringing all those people together into one book, I helped, I hope, uh, helps all of them a little bit. Man, it's great. Like Jason Liu, for one. Knocked it out of the park for us. Uh, yeah. Rodrigo Brava, Ricky Lima, Shane Amato. Uh, we had guys like uh, Michael Walsh and Adam Gorham come on. Uh, you know, having guys who are more established too, right? You know, you have your Noltozons and your uh, Turners coming in there and doing their stuff for you. It makes a big, big difference and it legitimizes the book quite a bit too. Jason Copeland came on and threw out a pinup for us, which was fantastic. He's doing Daredevil now, you know? Yeah. So many fantastic, Jay fantastic Bone, right? people. Yeah, Jay Bone, oh my God, yeah. I forgot Jay Bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jay Bone's in Monstrosity. It's like four pages, but those are four amazing pages, man. Yeah. 
guys, like, it's not all Toronto people, right? Yeah. Like, I know you said that at the beginning, but you can't, like, we had, like, Jim McMahon, we had, uh, Rob Cronenberg, we had, uh, Austin, uh, we had, you know, like, a lot of Americans in there as well. Yeah. And, you know, it is, uh, you know, now that we're working on Monstrosity too, there's more of that happening, too. Nice. So, uh, you know, it was fantastic, and, uh, we did an Indiegogo campaign for it, which was successful, and we were able to publish it again through Alterna. We did a print run much larger than we do with Horror in the West. We were able to print 1,200 books, got a nice fat cardstock on the cover, which was nice, and an amazing cover, too, uh... Uh, James Edward Clark did the cover for us, who uh, does these comics called Evil, and they're just fantastic. So, you know, really lucky. Really lucky to have a lot of good friends in comics who helped us out, and uh, really lucky to have a pretty good book that we're proud of. How do you decide how many rising stars you're going to have, new people, and then how many established people are you going to have? Because it's, with anthologies, it's always the established people that sort of get people in the door to buy, to buy the comic, right? So how do you, how do you figure out the mix? Um, man, you know, like, there's always... I don't know if there's a figuring out the mix exactly. There's kind of... Um, it's an indie book, and we want to have independent artists in it. Yeah. But at the same time... Jay Bone wants to do a story for you. That's awesome. And you're going to say yes. So it's great having those guys as the foundation who can bring eyes to it. Because guys like that have followings, you know, and like the, like people love them and buy everything they want, they do. And it gives us an opportunity to get those same eyes on people like I was mentioning earlier, like Jason Liu, Ricky Lima. Myself, Shane Amato, Phil McClory, you know, guys like us who are like not at that size and all of a sudden we get to tap into their viewership as well. It's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, like we were very lucky. I think a lot of it's relationships, you know, like meeting people and uh, having relationships with them and being able to, it's so much goodwill uh, and, and kindness from these artists because as you know, it takes a long time to draw these things. Yeah, so for sure. And they have their own deadlines oh, for absolutely. bigger companies and absolutely. stuff. Yeah, the stuff again, you know, yeah. paid the bucks for. Yeah. So it's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. So where are you at now? And how do you balance the animation thing with the comics thing? Like does it does it scratch different artistic itches for you? Yeah, like um animation is uh at times incredibly frustrating and upsetting and sometimes mind-numbingly boring and sometimes you're working on there was a period in my life where i worked on three talking rabbit shows in a, in a row like three little kids shows and they sucked but um then there's also shows that you work on where you're like so proud and so excited uh ugly americans i worked on ugly americans for three years straight and that was like the high point at this point, and uh, just a hilarious Comedy Central show that was put together by Augenblitz Studios in New York. Um, we just finished a pilot for Cartoon Network called Moonbeam City, which has uh, Bill Hader, Rob Lowe, Elizabeth Banks. It's called Moonbeam City, uh-huh. and uh, we're going to start production on season one this spring, and it's uh, it's it's really... A f- fantastic super funny show it could be like i think it's gonna be really big so doing things like that 
It's incredible because you're working on these shows. They're hilarious. They're beautifully animated. That's one that's very, very satisfying. But at the same time, sometimes you're working at bad studios and sometimes they take advantage of you. And that's really, really frustrating. In uh, terms of long hours and short hours, long, lack awesome. of respect, yeah. things like that. Animators are on the low scale at these studios. Yeah. You know, I am very lucky where I work right now. I work with like two of the greatest guys around, uh, Solace Animation, fantastic studio. But they're an artist run studio. Yeah. You know, places like Nelvana, they're not like that. Places like, well, you know, there's other studios. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean... They scratch different itches, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. What would you say your influences are? I mean, you mentioned Brian Lee O'Malley, uh, and I know how big a Brian Lee O'Malley fan you are. You, you have a whole bunch of his original art. I do. I have the first page of Scott Pilgrim on the walls, man. Yeah, wow. You know, that, that that's awesome. So, is it... Is it him? I also noticed, like, people can't see your books right now, but I definitely noticed the sort of uh, Asian manga sort of influence on, on the stuff that you do, but also sort of maybe, you know, for my own, in my own opinion, sort of an Archie sort of thing going on as well. So where, where do you sort of put yourself in terms of, in terms of influences? You know, I, I, uh, I've heard that before. That I always think that's like so interesting. Um, I love Archie. Everyone loves Archie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Marvel. I love manga. My favorite artists that are active, you know, I, I don't, you know, Paul Pope is huge. James Stoku, I love. I love uh, Jeff Darrow. Uh, so you get a lot of European influence from those guys. You know, older guys, Mobius, uh, Kasira Otomo is. Probably my favorite comic artist of all time. You know, I, I just recently <laughs> binge, binge comic, uh, this comic called Slam Dunk, which is one of the most popular mangas in Japan. I think it's 29 volumes. It's a basketball manga. Right. One basketball game will take four to five volumes of 200 page books. One basketball game. Wow. So what it's is it? Like, are they talking during the game? And like, it's like the plot is happening as they're passing the ball. Yeah. It'll be like, it'll be like 10 pages for a two point play. <laughs> and it's like just the artistry and like the, the pacing, like, you know, I am a visual guy and I love seeing how they, how they like, he just frames everything so well and moves moves the eye around and makes everything so intense. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect you would get invested into a comic book basketball game as much as you would maybe a real basketball game, but it's pretty it's pretty fantastic. Um so that's something I would I would and you know definitely there's a manga influence in my stuff because I love manga. You know, like Ursula, like Monster and 20th Century Boys and Pluto, you'll hear everybody talking about that guy. And it's fantastic. I love, uh, I love uh, Appleseed. I love Ghost in the Shell. I love all that stuff. I love Dragon Ball, man. Toriyama, man. People who don't, people who like dismiss Dragon Ball because of the cartoon. I got no time for you, man. That is a fucking comic book. Yeah, it's so good. It's insane. Yeah, and like you know, like that's the thing about comics is like there's always something amazing that you haven't read. 
Yeah, it's super exciting. There's even alternative manga. Like, I like Tech on King Creed a yeah, lot. Yeah, Tech on King Creed's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, even if you don't like, if you're sort of scared of, like, the big guy, small mouth stereotype, <laughs> there yeah. there are other styles out there. That's like, what those are, man. Those yeah. are stereotypes. Like, yeah, if someone yeah. tells you they don't like manga, if someone tells you they don't like webcomics, if someone tells you they don't like Marvel or DC, like, they're just not looking enough. You know, like yeah. those are just guys or girls who just like made a line in the sand and it's, it's stupid. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, where, where are you taking your work now? Uh, I, 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 uh, remember you talking before we started a little bit about your, about your silk screening and that sort of thing. But, you know, what's in the plans for Brian? How, are you going to go to new heights and uh, explore new avenues? Or are you going to keep uh, journeying it out at Art of Sally? What, what's going to happen? I hope. I, I plan to always make comics. I love comics. I'm not I'm not going to be someone that disappears, I don't think, from Art of Sally anytime soon. Um, I have introduced Silk Screening to my work over the last couple of years. I've been fortunate enough to make use of the print studio at York University, so I've been taking full advantage of that. All my books have silk screen covers now. At TCAF this year, um, I have three things that are going to be new at my table. I'm planning on having a print edition of Psychic Drama for the first time. It's going to be super limited edition hardcover, leather bound, which I'll be doing all by hand. So I'm not sure how many copies there will be, and I'm not sure how expensive it'll be. <laughs> but I'm probably only gonna have like ten or eleven copies of it. It takes a long time to do all that stuff by hand, but I'm very excited about it. Finally, having it on print, being able to put it on my bookshelf. I have a thing called a collection of things, and it's another leather-bound project, and it's limited to seven editions. Uh, it is collages of my existing comic book work. I'm trying to recontextualize the meaning of the pages and make the imagery mean new things. And then I have my newest mini-comic, which isn't exactly a mini-comic because it's 60 pages. And the title can change because my title changed with Sassy Mavericks even after the first print of it. It used to be called Space Cops. This one, it's right now it's I called... I might have the Space Cops version. You might have a Space Cops. <laughs> yeah. Sassy Mavericks. It now has a better cover and, well, I think it's a better cover and a new title, which is definitely a better title. Nice. Called Sassy Mavericks. You the see- new one's 60 pages. It's Right now it's going to be called Tough Stuff. And it's about uh, girls' school. It's about... It's not a girls' school. It's about a high school with these two girls who have a major rivalry. And they're also the two star athletes in the school fighting program. So they get to resolve their difficulties in the ring. It's a lot of it's an excuse for me to draw fighting. You you seem to draw you seem to draw <laughs> fighting a lot. I mean I do. you fight song is the whole book is a fight. Tough stuff was originally supposed to be fight song too. Uh, okay. And okay. then it's become a it's it's going to be my first series. It's going to be my first ongoing. Yeah. It's not. It might not be ongoing right away, but there's definitely a second issue. Yeah. There's definitely a third issue. I own this whole plan for it. What you do sort of reminds me a lot of like Cadillacs and dinosaurs sometimes. Oh wow! It seems like it seems like a lot of like cars and sort of like Rebel Without a Cause style 
high school drama, like greasers sort of <laughs> sort of situation. So yeah, there's cars and tough stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that is that intentional as well? Is that sort of like your influences? Um, this is like going back to Toriyama. Um, Toriyama with Dragon Ball, there would always be these covers to the issues that like made had no relation to the comic. It'd be like Goku and Piccolo in, in like this awesome, adorable car driving down the street and uh, things like I always loved his vehicles. So I, I started trying to ape those at a certain point. I draw vehicles. They're in no way any exact vehicle. They're my own like little approximations of what a car should be. And uh, I, I don't know, man. I just love it. Um, motorcycles like that probably comes from Akira. I love all that stuff. I love I love vehicles. I love drawing them. Just a boy. I'm just a boy. I like my punches and my my bikes and my cars. No, yeah. and, and you're you're awesome to hang out with. I remember oh, as a thank you for uh, doing the Black Bastard anthology. I, I took you to uh, Neil Gaiman, a Neil Gaiman appearance <laughs> at the St. Lawrence. Uh, Art Center. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, something happened. Neil Gaiman is, is, you know, one of my top two favorite writers in any genre. I know. You're not one of his top two favorites, though, are you? Yeah, no, No. not. (laughs) The other one being Alan Moore. But when I went to the St. Lawrence Art Center, I got a little too eager and a little too fadboyish. I know, you did. And I pissed off Neil Gaiman. You did. You made him really mad. Uh, yeah. So you remember what happened? I I do remember what I happened. Remember what happened? Why, okay. Why don't you tell your version of the story, and I'll tell my version of the story, and we'll see where the two <laughs> versions intersect. You uh, you were uh, there was a question period coming up, and there was people walking around with microphones, and you very, you know, you you laid it down and let it be known that you needed one of those microphones, and you got a microphone delivered directly to your hand. And uh, you got the first question, and you asked Neil Gaiman about the Miracle Man controversy, which we uh, we don't have to get into. But anyways, Neil's given his answer, and you interrupt him because you want you want to refine what he's saying to go more to what. And Neil's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa one minute!" And he stops you, and then he berates you in front of five hundred people, six hundred people. I have no idea. A lot of Neil Gaiman fans. And he berates you for being very rude, for interrupting him like a dick. <laughs> and you, you were, you, you felt shame. <laughs> like, okay, so, so this is how I remember it. So she, it was a woman who gave me the microphone. Yeah. And, and I got it in my hand, it was awesome. And I, and, and nobody was asking about the Miracle Man controversy. And briefly, uh, Miracle Man is a comic that uh, you know Neil Gaiman never got to finish, and he will he will get to finish it by the end of this year. But at the time, it had been not published forever and stuck in uh, litigation for years as to who owned the 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 Miracle Man property, Marvel Man property, whatever you're gonna whatever you're gonna call it. And I think that I. I got a little perturbed because I was like, I don't have a lot of time. I have, I have to get this answer. And he started doing sort of like the background on the situation for people. 
and giving what I thought was sort of a pat answer, but not really giving any new information. So I think I said, yeah, 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 I know that already. Oh, did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think I said, yeah, 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 I know oh that already. God. I'm just wondering about, like, I was trying to be more specific about it. He was trying to add context for the 600, 700 people <laughs> he was, he that was. didn't know every fucking inch of the story, but... Yeah, Man, you're you're a bit of a jerk. That's pretty funny. <laughs> he and was. after after though, you you met him again. I did. Yeah, I I, I apologize. I told him I didn't mean to, and I didn't mean to. I was just trying to get that specific answer. That he I, moved you out of that line quick. He signed those books. Yeah, 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 yeah right, for right. sure. But he, you know, he was like, <laughs> no, no problem. I understand. You know, it was totally fine. So I think I think we're good now. You think we're good? I think you guys are probably. I'm surprised you weren't at the wedding. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, totally. All right, man. You you got to witness one of my um, most shameful moments in in comic book meet and greet history. It's pretty stellar. So, uh, but but you know, not I wouldn't take a better guy to Uh, witness my downfall. So thanks, thanks for uh, hanging out and coming in. Do you got anything to plug? Any uh, any websites, places where people can buy and see your work? Uh, my Twitter handle is Brian underscore Avenue. Um, please add to my follower to following ratio. I could really use that. Uh, my website is BrianAvenue.com. I got Blogspot BrianAvenue.blogspot. Tumblr's Brian Avenue. I think I can remember. Um. Yeah, anything to plug? TCAF in May. Uh, we're doing that Sarnia Pop Show in March. Uh, we're going to Boston in August and Fan Expo in August. So there's probably some other shows coming up too. I'm not really sure. Uh, we're going to be launching the Kickstarter for Monstrosity 2. The Monstrosity... Uh, I was going to come up with some great tagline for the end, like Championship Edition or something like that, but I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, that'll be launching in March or April. I think. So, that should be about it. That was awesome, man. Thanks for uh, showing up and doing this for me. Hey, Aaron, thanks for having me. I had a great time, and, uh, yeah, good luck with the show, man. I want to thank uh, Brian, and uh, we'll see you next time. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.